Welcome to the Smart Driving Cars podcast. We appreciate you spending some time with us. We have a great discussion in store. This edition is sponsored by the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. For more information, head to MOTOETF.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi again, Alan. Hey, good morning, everybody. Well, we have some big news we're going to be talking about just a little bit later on from Waymo today. Uh, Really looking forward to that. But first, we have some great guests with us. What will become of car dealerships as autonomous mobility services evolve and grow, along with electric vehicles, which need far less maintenance? We have the right people here to dive into those issues with us. Sheldon Sandler is a pioneer who created the first IPO in the dealer community, founder of Bel Air Partners and consultant to many dealerships. And Glenn Mercer is a researcher who has served as the NADA's special consultant on the future of car dealerships. Sheldon and Glenn, really happy to have you with us. Happy to be here. So nice to have you. Thank you. Let's start out with a snapshot, maybe, of the health of car dealerships in the U.S. today. Sheldon, you want to get into that first? Well, believe this or not, car dealers are experiencing the perfect storm. The, uh, there's been a, because of the shutdown of the factories, uh, there's not been enough product out there in dealer lots. So they're getting great margins on new cars, but because there's not enough product out there, not enough inventory. Used cars have been uh, the big winner. And uh, the, the uh, profitability of used cars has been soaring, as you might have seen the uh, performance of all the dealerships, but particularly, for example, Carvana, which is a used car idea, uh, and a unique way of marketing online. And that's just, what is the, what's the market cap of uh, Carvana? Like $60 billion or something? Absolutely un- unimaginable. And, Are they uh, the ones with vending machines? <laughs> yes, that's the vending machine. On top of that, uh, car dealers have been able to right-size their, their expense structure. Because car dealers are, are somewhat unique in that they, they don't have much uh, fixed expense. They have a variable, variable expense structure. So they, they can uh, whittle their expense structure to meet the times. So, so uh, the profitability has soared thanks to reduced expenses and uh, terrific margins on new and used cars. So it's been, uh, and the, the, well, I think all the, uh, the earnings season for the uh, car dealers, is, the public car dealers is just, just uh, what is it, the past week or so uh, have, uh, have demonstrated profitability beyond what Wall Street anticipate. So uh, dealerships, at least as they stand right now, uh, have been extremely profitable. Glenn, you want to comment on that? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Sheldon's a- absolutely right. In the, It was sort of, it's been bizarro world in a way, <laughs> in that around April or so, um, uh, oh, and first, I, sorry, I got to do one piece of boilerplate. Uh, you introduced me as a consultant to NADA, the National Auto Dealer Association, with its unfortunate acronym, uh, but um, which is correct. Uh, but my comments in this entire uh, podcast will be my own, not representing NADA, the uh, 
at the national level or the state associations at the state level. Okay, uh, boilerplate out of the way. Um, uh, and Sheldon's exactly right. It, it is, but it has been bizarre. Around April, we had people thinking it's time to close the dealership doors and walk away. And now we're in a position where uh, front end gross margins, that is how much I pay. And, and we're talking new car here. Okay. I know you mentioned people mentioned Carvana, but the main topic I think of this conversation is the franchise new car dealers, the 18,000 of them, not the 35,000 independent used car dealers, but we can talk about them too. Uh, but for those new car dealers, their front end gross margin, which is how much I paid for the car versus how much I sold it is at highs that may, we maybe haven't seen since the 1990s. Uh, and Sheldon's exactly right again. Uh, the reason for this is the factories shut down in uh, March, April, May, and even June. So inventory dried up. And it turns out that uh, uh, the American demand for cars is really strong. And so um, we have now hit uh, average transaction prices that have never been seen before. I think we're at $37,000, Sheldon. Thirty-seven right? five. That's the average new car and truck. Of course, it's much lower for cars than trucks. Um, the average new car sells in probably in the, the high 20s. Uh, the average pickup truck, America's luxury vehicle, uh, sells for probably 50-something. Uh, but average together, we're like 35, 36, 37,000. There's another piece in there, um, and Sh Sheldon mentioned. So on the, on the front end, you know, the gross margin we have to work with, and then it's a matter of deducting expenses from that to get to our, our profit. And as Sheldon mentioned, uh, dealers have been able to run more lean with their biggest expense, which is payroll labor. Uh, again, we laid everybody off in March, April, and May. And then as we brought people back on, sales staff in particular back on, we found that with customers demanding and dealers providing whatever you want to call it, um, touchless, low touch, online only, internet selling, whatever, um, uh, that uh, we could use a much smaller sales force to sell the same number of vehicles. The, the average sales per car, new car, new car sales per month for the average salesperson at a dealership has been 10 uh, for the last 35 years. I kid you not, no productivity growth at all. And now it's come up way higher than that to like 16 or 17. I think part of it is uh, we just hired back all the best salespeople and the other ones were still leaving in the pool. The other part is when you go digital, uh, salespeople can go from serial to parallel processing. So if you walk into a dealership and there's a salesperson and you say, okay, I want to buy a car, that salesperson then of course attaches himself or herself to you very closely and yes, follows you around <laughs> for the next two or three hours and you either get the sale done or not. But when you have online sales, uh, the salesperson can pivot from the email from customer A to the text from customer B. And so they're really uh, making more, more, moving more metal at higher prices, as we just said, um, for less time. So that reduces labor costs and that's helpful. There's one other thing I got to mention, I'll stop this monologue and we don't have data on this yet. Um, but it seems to be emerging. And this is one of those, be careful what you wish for America uh, things, which is the amount of haggling seems to have dropped. That is when people go online to buy things, they somehow don't think it's appropriate now to argue the price. So the average customer who went physically at a dealership five years ago would have said, can you knock another $500 off this so I can get this sold? 
you know, my spouse is watching, uh, he or she's got to see me, you know, being diligent about price. It's like online, it's click, click. And uh, yeah, that's fine. I'll take it. Uh, so, uh, you know, because when was the last time you haggled with Amazon? Uh, so Amazon has trained people. You do not haggle online. Of course you can. Uh, but um, if we add up together, low inventory, driving availability down and therefore prices up, uh, a decrease in haggling and an improvement in Salesforce productivity, uh, dealers are doing very well. Yeah. Well, I mean, we should but, mention but, also. But, let, me, but, let me ask just a question on that. The, the, the thing that online allows you to do is compare prices a heck of yep. a lot easier than going from one dealer than another. Mm -hmm. And so the comparative price doesn't work unless there's collusion in the market that makes sure that in fact, uh, everybody offers the same price. Now, now mm -hmm. I'm certainly not accusing anybody of collusion. I mean, of course not. How, 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 did, how do the dealerships maintain diligence to not, you know, undersell each other to try to make the sell or hasn't that dynamic worked its way in there because I don't know it doesn't as you mentioned Amazon is so damn big there's nobody Congress yeah. may deal yeah. with that uh, go uh, any any thoughts on those on those ideas yeah, two, two thoughts and then I'd like to hand it over to Sheldon for his yeah yeah, on yeah this. please um, uh, thanks. one is the price bands have collapsed with the internet even before 2020 right the era of um selling nine cars at twelve thousand dollars and then getting a sucker to pay seventeen thousand dollars for the tenth one doesn't happen anymore the internet has really narrowed price bands so there's less room for negotiation otherwise uh in general anyway um and then uh secondly um uh, dealers have usually provided by third-party vendors a fire hose of data coming in constantly every single day saying in your market yellow convertibles are currently at this price so they can see all their competitors it's usually aggregated data by uh, services from Cox Automotive or something mm -hmm. so they're very aware it's a little bit like gas stations it's like look across the corner Okay, you're at $1.99 and I'm at $1.98. Okay, we'll stay there. Uh, price discovery is pretty easy, both for the customer, of course, and for the dealer as well. And I lied because I have a third point. Uh, the, other, um, <laughs> the other thing to point out, of course, is yeah. you're probably aware the dealer tends to make more money on the back end than the front end. So the front end margin, uh, which is important, um, is not what it used to be uh, for car dealers. Payments directly from the OEM monthly, quarterly, or annually um, tend to, for the average dealer, provide more of the new car profit than the margin does. Back to Shelton. Yeah, just to, just to follow up on that, uh, one thing that's not very well known is dealers uh, are rewarded in various ways, the more product they sell, the more the manufacturers like them. And in some cases, they, they actually, as Glenn was saying, they might get bonus money if they hit certain targets. So uh, one thing that hasn't changed is always buy at the end of the month right, or buy at the end of right, the year. That right, is very right. true still. Right. That's, that's uh, yeah. what's happened. Right. And the other thing I wanted to bring up, uh, Glenn, was that and we, we, neither of us uh, mentioned this is that interest rates have also helped the dealers. Mm -hmm. uh, that's they may not have a big fixed cost, but they do have mortgages, and they uh, which is a big expense for them. They're they're they're, uh, they're 
their um, facility expenses, their biggest uh, investment, and uh, their, in their inventory is their second biggest investment. And thanks to interest rates, uh, it's been, uh, once again, a perfect storm for them. And the interest rates it helps the buyer. It helps the buyer too, because the buyer is out there, you know, looking at what they're going to pay per month. Uh, they get to make a little bit better margin on doing the financing on it and all the things, right? Or those don't self, don't play. It's a self-reinforcing ecosystem, such that when things are on the upswing in automotive in the United States, they go together, and when they are on the downswing, they go together too as well. So you already mentioned used cars. So. Um, uh, think of the the virtuous circle here from a dealer perspective. Um, we don't have as many new cars because the uh, factories were closed. Um, so we bid up the price of new cars. Um, because we don't have uh, more expensive new cars, the used car market takes off as people say, well, I can't afford a new Camry. I'll get a three-year-old used one. Now we bid up the prices of used cars. Now a new car buyer says, hey, I'm going to get $1,500 more for my trade-in than I otherwise would have. The new car is more affordable. you know, And they, it just kind of circles around and circles around. It works the other way in a downturn, of course. Well, America's Terry, great, isn't it? I mean, what a as long as you're on the one on on the right side of that of that curve, right? It is when definitely a K-shaped recovery, though, for sure, because <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. we are not seeing the same pattern for the used car side. I mean, the used car prices are up, but um, uh, I think unfortunately, the re we are in a recovery which is exacerbating income and wealth differences. I think we're really moving to a world, not immediately, but steadily and slowly year by year, where cars will look like the housing market, rich people will buy new build and everybody else will buy used. The average age of a new car buyer in the United States is 55. Wow. Okay. Well, you just think, you just so most people all through their 20s, 30s and 40s are buying perfectly good used cars. Back to Sheldon. Glenn, you just explained something to me. I, I took uh, one of our Porsches into the dealership to get one of our Porsches. <laughs> oh, jeez. There you go. There well, you I'm go. Car, you got to remember, I'm a car nut. So, and, and there were not, there was no new inventory at the Porsche dealer. Yeah. Which, which was almost shocked me. But that yeah. you just explained it. Uh, the people have nowhere else. Wealthy people have nowhere else to put the money, so they're out there buying Porsches, right? Right. Well, they haven't been spending money on travel for the past six months, uh, right? You know, it's piled up savings. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Anyway, sorry, that was a macro point. Well, I was going to ask you both about uh, the impact of the pandemic here and, and, and the, so many people being out of work. And, but you're saying the, the, the car sales are, are up. So it's this... There's a real division then. We know unemployment uh, people who can rates, afford it and people who we can't. Know white collar unemployment rates are like that's still where they were in last year, right? Very few white collar people with high incomes have been laid off. All the unemployment is in blue collar, you know, restaurant wait staff, et cetera, et cetera. There's good data on this from Raj Chetty and others. So, um, yeah, uh, so you take, if you take wealthy people, the, the average income of a new car buyer is well over $100,000 family household income. Uh, you, you say, A, you haven't lost your job. Uh, B, you've been spending less money because you haven't gone anywhere. Uh, C, interest rates are low. Uh, yeah, you buy a car. Uh, but yeah, for the, um, for the blue collar population, uh, 
uh, things are look much, much differently. But again, we didn't have people earning, you know, $31,000 a year coming into new car dealerships. Well, you, you said something in that uh, people aren't going anywhere. So a lot of people aren't driving very much. They're not, they're not even driving to work in many I, cases. I, I, I mean, they, we're not taking expensive vacations to the south well, of France. And but but it's, all, it's also true that there's less driving, isn't it? Uh, it hasn't VMT gotten pretty much close to recovery? Uh, maybe it, it's, gotten, it's gotten close. The amazing thing was that even in the, in the downturn, the, v, the, the VMT didn't go down all that deeply. Some of that VMT also includes trucks. And what happened in, in throughout the pandemic, one of the things that, that continued to operate well, I claim, I think there's supporting evidence of that, is the logistics system. I mean, yeah. we the, the, there was food still on the shelves. I mean, that whole yeah. system didn't collapse. Otherwise, we would have ended up, I think, in much, much worse shape than we were. So yeah. I think both, you know, societally and everything else. So so that piece of the economy continued continued on unabated and maybe even increased. And in some sense, if you even take it to the airline industry, if you look at, at what happened in the airline industry, while they weren't moving people, they were much more air freight. So there was more air freight being moved uh, uh, during that, uh, which certainly helped in terms of making sure that, the, you know, right. at least we were fed. To Fred's uh, point, though, uh, and your point as well, though, uh, we do have to look at VMT more carefully. So um, uh, vehicle miles traveled has rebounded yep. strongly. But um, you're right uh, that quite a bit of it might not be that rebound might not be personal miles traveled as in commuting to work or going to the grocery store, but, um, you know, millions of people delivering DoorDash trips. So that still counts as a vehicle miles travel, but it might be a, a commercial delivery as opposed to an individual, um, an individual a trip. One, one thing I think is really fascinating is emerging literature on work from home, because I think the assumption was as we move to more and more work from home, which seems to be happening, right? I'm not going to, I'm not an expert there, is that um, vehicle miles traveled will drop. And it's uh, the, the mixture of academic researches on this is inconclusive. It looks like giving up your commute to work a few days a week doesn't necessarily cut down your miles traveled. Um, as you do more errands or drive, you know, if you, if, let's take the, the, the uh, banal stereotyped commute of I drive into downtown Boston to my workspace and then I drive home at night. Now I don't do that. I work from home. Don't I save 20 miles? Yeah, but when you were in Boston, maybe you just went down the elevator to the food court to get lunch and now you drive to the McDonald's to get lunch or something. So uh, oddly enough, we haven't seen yet conclusive evidence that work from home is gonna really whack VMT. Personally, what I think might whack VMT, uh, which might boost VMT, which we again have to untangle, is the decline of air travel. Uh, you only have to give up a couple of, uh, you know, 
round trip flights, taking the kids to the Grand Canyon, replace that with a car trip to really drive miles up again. But I wandered off the point again. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, that's, um, but those are good points. Uh, Those are Mm -hmm. actually very good points. There's also the, the point is which, uh, is which uh, mass transit is way down. And so, and mass transit, not that it was very big. It was only 4% of the trips before, you know, now it's whatever, but mass transit is, is, is really, uh, is really in trouble. It, it, and in fact, um, you know, who knows how many of those people went out and bought used cars because they didn't want to whatever to do whatever. There's been some anecdotal comments about that. One needs to get real data on it. But the data that's been put out by by Inrix, who sits there and right. basically does a what I think a really good job of of mm-hmm. of getting a, a very good sample of vehicle miles traveled. I mean, when I looked at it, I was shocked at how little I thought Lua went down. You know, just from running around Princeton, I thought, hey, nobody's in their cars anymore. <laughs> it, it wasn't true. Yeah. I mean, so uh, so the car is the ultimate social distancing device, right? What used to be a bug <laughs> is now a feature. Um, I mean, they're going uh, to know. political rallies in cars and sitting around and whatever. <laughs> I mean, you, then you think about, oh, my goodness, what the heck's going on? I, whatever. Uh, yeah. Drive in rallies, right? I'm, Drive. I'm a car guy, but I'm going to get on a mass transit soapbox briefly. Again, push the nuclear button, Fred, if I go too far here. But uh, I think mass transit is vital for the lower classes of America in particular. I know that sounds condescending, but we've got to do a better job of providing the mass transit options. Yeah. And all I can say is, and I follow a lot of mass transit pundits, is buy more buses. Politicians love to stand in front of a light rail project and cut a ribbon or something like that. But for the people who have to go to work and have no choice to get to the nursing home where they're in attendant or something, move the buses from three times an hour unpredictably to seven times an hour. And, and you, can re, you can do an amazing amount of improvement to mass transit um, uh, quality by you know getting away from the gigantically expensive capital projects and just put buses on but no politician wants to stand up there and say hey a lot more buses on the road vote for me but boy that would do amazing things for mass transit i think let me jump on and uh, and i want to jump on that because i certainly uh, I, i i i i agree with you absolutely on that but i take it one step farther I mean, to me, that's the reason to do driverless. It's the only reason to do driverless is because all of a sudden with driverless, you have the opportunity to deliver high quality mobility at an affordable price. All you got to do is try to get a couple of people in a bus. You can't, if you have to pay for the bus driver, you almost can't afford it unless we decide to put a whole heck of a lot more money into it or take all of that capital money that we were going to put in into some who knows what system, uh, rail system, and then really pay the drivers. But to really get mobility out there to folks, uh, that's the way to do it. But uh, at least that's my soapbox. And, right. and uh, well, uh, anyway, uh, Sheldon, you jump in too. What's your soapbox on this well, one? Well, no, I was thinking about what you said, and it, it reminds me, you know, I, in my college days, I used to work in summers in Atlantic City. And they had a really good solution to what Glenn's talking about. They didn't, they didn't have buses. They had what they called jitneys, which, which are, uh, you know, you see, you know, they, they run them in airports, right? But in Atlantic City, you, know, you never had to worry about getting, getting transportation because they would come 
like Glenn was saying, every 10 minutes or so, you could hop on a jitney. Yeah, and, and then, imagine if they were autonomous jitneys, which shouldn't be a big problem, right? Sure, and then <laughs> absolutely in places where you have enough density for that, you absolutely do that. But in our communities, like I say, in Trenton, New Jersey, my goodness, we don't have that kind of, uh, of, of density, but we could have vehicles out there that just move people around and, and, and be able to do it. So anyway, um, 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 uh, yeah, uh, great. <laughs> well, I think we've shifted gears, is it like Sheldon, like Sheldon, like Sheldon with his Porsche? So, so <laughs> what about that? What about this evolution to autonomous vehicle services? Um, the car manufacturers are talking about it uh, big time. So, what is that going to mean for dealers? That's a specialty of Glenn's. You want to comment on this, Glenn? Uh, you're muted, Glenn. Uh, I thought it was a good uh, prophylactic thing there to be muted. Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, by the way, on the autonomy front, uh, just and I, I, I lob this out there at the risk of totally sidetracking the discussion in a different direction. But as we were talking before this podcast started, uh, Waymo essentially came out with, you know, massive, a massively impactful story uh, that they might be able to get their uh, their self-driving, I hesitate to use driverless, whatever is the correct Driverless, phrase. let's use driverless, driverless in this Driverless program. software out on the road in other OEMs, cars, um, very quickly, or quicker than we thought, or they've advanced further than we thought, how we want to phrase it. And... Uh, about the same time today or yesterday, I think, uh, Tesla announced they were upping the cost of their FSD full-size self-driving thing, which we have arguments about the terminology there, uh, to $10,000, an option. So it's interesting to see that right now, and I know watching the stock market for any short period of time is a fool's game, but Tesla stock is down 6%, down by $23, and I think it might be um, uh, people realizing that the FSD uh, revenue model might be harder to pull off if uh, big competitor Waymo is closer to market than we thought with an alternative. I don't know that, but we, um, uh, Tesla stock is down uh, $23, and that's surprising. Okay, so um, the let question me, is, what, Can I interrupt you for a minute? Let me please. put this in context for, for people who aren't familiar with, with this community. Uh, you're about... 17,000 car dealerships in this country. Less than 10% are owned by public companies, the auto nations, the group ones. Uh, so they, so it's this, this community, the, 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 your local dealership is most likely going to be owned by a private, a private individual, a private family. And typically, Glenn, you're probably more familiar with, with the statistics than I am, but I would say the average car dealership uh, gross revenue is in the 30 to $40 million range. And the bottom line, uh, maybe half a million dollars on average, maybe a bit more than that today. And um, this has been relatively static now for how many years? Uh, 10 years or so. Um, and the last big downturn in car uh, dealership ownership was uh, in the 2008 uh, financial collapse. But we have had a rather 
steady ownership. Uh, the public the public consolidators occasionally will buy some dealerships, but it's pretty been pretty much static up until now. And let me make one further comment before I turn it over to Glenn. Dealers tend to look at their business one month at a time. They don't look five years down. They're, they, they're very reactive to, to the immediate circumstances of their business. And they're not future thinkers typically. And uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Glenn. So what, what about the idea then, Glenn, of, of this shift to mobility services that uh, some of the manufacturers are, are, are talking about? I mean, we had Ford on with us a, a week ago uh, chatting about that. Right. Uh, uh, first of all, just to update on the statistics, the average dealership revenue is about sixty million. Uh, not not this year because we had some bad months in there, but about about sixty million, about five million dollars a month. Um, Sheldon's absolutely right. It's like seventeen thousand five hundred. Our peak was fifty five thousand in the mid fifties. Uh, we were sort of twenty thousand before the Great Recession, and then with the bankruptcies of GM and Chrysler, that broomed about two thousand dealers out. We're at about eighteen thousand. And mea culpa, I've been wrong for the last ten years, expecting that number to drop, and it just doesn't drop. Um, I think it's related to the suburbanization of America. As a greater and greater fraction of the population of America lives in the burbs, uh, you just need the geographic coverage of dealers. But that's a separate topic. So, but Sheldon's right on the on the magnitudes and the size. By the way, um, uh, now I'll uh, I'll just do a you know a dealer promo here a little bit. Is in average small town America or small town small town suburban areas, uh, the car the new car dealer may be the last man or woman standing in terms of locally owned private businesses. The restaurants have been wiped out by the chains. Uh, the local hardware store has been killed by um, you know Home Depot. Uh, the local newspaper nobody's even heard of those anymore. They tend to be kind of the pillar of the community, last person out there. Uh, so it's an interesting thing to to note. Okay. AV, okay, let's uh, get the terms right here. Um, so autonomous vehicles and you said mobility services. I'm gonna address the two of them separately actually because while they are overlapping and conflate, they are not the same thing. Uh, Uber and Lyft are not uh, AVs, but a robo-taxi, wonderful term, is an AV that does mobility services, right? Okay, so um, what is the impact of a rising number of AVs on dealers? We want to talk about that first. Um, uh, the first question, I guess, is are they privately owned or fleet owned? The assumption has been for a decade now that they will be too expensive to be owned by individuals. They will be owned by fleets. That's the assumption. I would like to push back on that a little bit and say it's kind of interesting that AV enthusiasts are talking out of in two contradictory directions and that they say, the cost of making a vehicle autonomous is falling and falling, but they will be too expensive to be individually owned. So I, I, I think there may be, um, just like there is a market out there for frustrated Mercedes station wagon buyers. Um, what's a station wagon anyway, Alan? I never heard of that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> station Mercedes still makes one. No, no, no. I, I don't know what that is. Anyway, uh, uh, I'm going to get to you. I'll, I'll get back. I'll get back to you. <laughs> it's been decreed by the powers that we're all going to drive crossovers. I don't know what happened there, but it, it's, it's just an amazing stampede. But um, imagine, uh, you know, so if you think that the average household buying uh, a new car is at $105,000 of income now, and by 2025, when these things are more available, is like at 120000 
do you really think that we they may not be able to afford a fifteen thousand dollar upcharge on an AV to buy their own personally owned AV? I don't know the answer. Well, one one of the big issues there, if I can interrupt, Glenn, is not just the cost of the technology, but it's the liability involved. And we talk about that a lot, Alan. Who's responsible if there's an accident, if the vehicle is is self-driving? I I don't agree with all the other people that that, that say they're going to be too expensive. I think uh, you have to, the, the responsibility associated with owning one of these things, that it's going to you're going to put it out there without anybody in it and it's going to go pick up your your dry cleaning and bring it back home to you the goofy thought that it actually the driverless piece uh we're just too irresponsible for that we don't maintain our vehicles well enough and i don't think uh mike scrutato or anybody else is going to sell us insurance to do that and certainly the the manufacturer isn't elon hasn't said i'm responsible for full self-driving if anything happens he has not said that he's pointed to the to the to the small princess you're responsible. You turn the thing on, it's yours. Holy hell. I mean, <laughs> you don't want to put that in my hands. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to be a goop. I'm, uh, talk to me, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> so so, so if, if so the if we I don't know what percentage of driverless cars will be owned by individuals as opposed by fleets. But to answer your question into two parts, for the, the part of AV sales that are owned by individuals, I think there's no real impact on the dealer. Now it's just a car with an additional suite of features, which means you can drive yourself somewhere and have sex in the back seat while you're going there. Um, uh, and uh, for those, it'll just be a car, additional features, sold by a dealer, maintained by a dealer. So set that aside if you think that responsible the dealer will be also responsible if i'm in the back seat who's responsible if the thing goes bang and i'm in the back seat i don't know uh, i follow what's his name uh brian foster whatever at university of south carolina on this i don't know if it's gonna i, I brian walker guess smith it, brian yeah, walker smith that's it yeah. i guess it would be a blended model where if you're in av mode it's product liability of the oem and if you're in manual driven mode, it's your car insurance, but I don't know. Uh, so let me ask you a question here. It, not to, it, hmm. Do you think any dealer or manufacturer will take responsibility of that, of that vehicle if I'm in the back seat? I don't know. I just don't know. I mean, you know, I mean, it's got to, it's going to have to be the probability that that thing crashes has to be essentially zero. I mean, really zero. And I'm the one that's maintaining it. I'm the one that, that, that decided to turn this thing on. Really? Somebody is going to, is going to have that much faith that I'm not a total screwball that, I, it just seems to me such such a, a huge hurdle. There was an article out just recently, I can provide a link to it, showing yep. that one of the big problems in testing AVs right now is mayflies clogging the sensors. So does this mean that, uh, you know, dr- the person who is going to be driven in the driverless vehicle each day before they start up is supposed to clean all the sensors? 
you know, whose liability is that, right? You know, what do you mean you put a bumper sticker over the ultrasonic sensor? Well, sorry, I just did it, you know? Uh, yeah, I, I, right. I, I, I mean, I don't know how to approach the liability issues. They're just incredible. Well, but leaving that aside. Uh, yeah, okay. the, the, the issue, Glenn, uh, about uh, if this model shifts the way some uh, car makers are, are seeing it to uh, mobility service. Right. What role do you see dealerships right. playing? So let's pretend there's 100 driverless cars sold in 2025. Ten of them are sold to private individuals. I think the impact on dealers there is relatively minimal, um, uh, but mostly upside. More expensive vehicle is more margin, and an autonomous vehicle will be driven more miles, and that's more service revenue. Let's take the other 90% then, if we think it's 90%. That's fleet sales, robo-taxis, to some future descendant of Uber or WeWork or something, where it's a mobility service, uh, driverless. Or you Waymo know. One. Uh, Waymo, you know. Waymo One. Yeah, I think if Waymo's smart, they'll only sell the software to OEMs and stay out of the car business themselves. Yeah, so yeah, we'll of see. course. Yeah, why we'll did, see, we'll did they already decide that? They gave up on the Firefly, I think. Yeah, Craftic is no dummy. Yeah. Uh, so that may answer the reliability question for you right there. I don't know. Anyway, but um, so... These are now sold to fleets. What does it mean for dealers? Well, A, dealers probably now lose the front-end margin because it's more like a sale to Hertz. And as your listeners are probably aware, if a dealer, uh, most rental cars, and I know, remember rental cars? Maybe they, maybe they come back. Uh, rental cars, most rental cars are actually sold uh, to say like a Hertz via a local dealer who would take a very small handling fee, not a real margin or something like that. Okay, so uh, the front end margin collapses. They also don't get financing income on this because uh, Uber or whatever is gonna bring its own financing to bear to finance these vehicles and not just gonna do individual bank loans one by one and spiff the dealer $1,000 or something. So that's bad. Um, where, it come, where I think there's more uncertainty is who does the maintenance. Um, these will be high maintenance vehicles. We come back again to Alan's concerns about liability. Assume we have high liability here, right? Because um, uh, I don't want to get too morbid, but the first time a driverless vehicle is sewn at fault and has run over a child, all hell will break loose. Yes, okay? of course. Absolutely. Uh, Hindenburg kind of moment. So yeah. I am going to guess that whoever, whatever fleet is running these things, they want them impeccably maintained. Absolutely. A little bit like aircraft are maintained. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And the question, and various people say, I'm the one who's going to do it. Well, uh, I don't know if Uber, so let's take Uber, Uber driver taxi. So they say to themselves, I'm going to need to be able to maintain these, check these cars once a week probably and maintain them once a month. I'll need very skilled technicians and facilities to do that. Wait a minute, don't those already exist at dealers? Uh, other people like um, Cox with their pivot uh, thing, P-I-V-E-T, uh, said that they can use their auction sites to uh, as big, massive AV maintenance facilities. Um, I, don't know, I don't know. If I'm Ford and I'm selling an AV to a fleet, uh, might I? I not require that fleet to bring it to my dealer uh, where I can control the training and the, t uh, and the tool usage uh, of the technician. So can I, can I interrupt you, know, you for a moment? So, so, so I'll wrap up in one sentence. So that is personally owned AVs. I think of minimal impact on the dealer. It's mostly possible fleet owned AVs 
people are expecting them to really hurt dealers who will lose maintenance revenue, I'm not so sure. Sheldon. Yeah, we, we can't skip this issue. Tesla does not use traditional privately owned car dealers. They, they sell direct to the consumer without, without our traditional dealer. But just this morning, they announced they're going to set up their own shops, their, their own back ends to their sales side. And I, I, it was a big number that they, they intend to establish uh, on their own. So they're going to have their, their own fixits. Uh, I think that that has a pretty significant impact on your discussion. Yeah, and, and be, let's make sure we're clear what Sheldon just said. I hadn't seen that news item, but that's yeah, important. Came out this uh, in both cases, it's a OEM controlled channel that does the maintenance. In one case, we're going to use local entrepreneurs to finance it, dealers. In the other case, we'll finance it ourselves, Tesla. But in both cases, it's controlled by the OEM who sold the driverless car, as opposed to saying, you know, Larry and Sergey's robo taxi fleet, you do the maintenance. Okay. When, when you talk about uh, the shift, uh, not just with uh, autonomous vehicles, many of them will be electric vehicles, but the overall move by car makers to building more and more electric vehicles, doesn't that impact the, the revenue, maintenance revenue at, at dealerships because they take a lot right. less maintenance? Yeah, two, points, two or three points on this, on electric vehicles, because we've looked at this really carefully for the NADA study. A, it is pretty darn clear that EVs will require less maintenance than ICE, internal combustion engine. Don't have the engine, you don't have the radiator leak and stuff. You may have a battery coolant system, by the way. No oil uh, changes. Uh, no oil changes, et cetera, et cetera. So absolutely right, okay? And the numbers move around a lot. Let's call it a 50% drop, okay? So let's say if I were spending $600 a year maintaining my vehicle, now I'm at $300. This is bad for dealers. On the other hand, dealers have very high service retention on a few EVs that are out there. That is, if I have an EV right now, American customers at least think, I'd better bring this back to the dealer, not to Alan's house of wheels, you know, uh, you know, come weekend. on. Right. So uh, what I always say to dealers is uh, these are very loyal customers. They're not spending as much as they were before, but every dollar they're spending, they're spending with you. Do not lose these customers. Uh, so I think it'd be the dealer's own fault if EVs turn out to be a real hit to their service line, because um, right now, pretty much every Nissan Leaf is going back to a Nissan dealership, uh, admittedly for less money per year. Uh, but, um, you know, don't lose it. The other point I'll make is... Um, the prediction is absolutely spot on. It'd be less revenue. On the other hand, um, dealers have been resilient to this prediction because I remember back in the 80s uh, when people were saying a car quality was getting so good that dealers were screwed because there wouldn't be any work to do in maintenance and repair. And warranty work kind of went away, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's a small amount. I don't know if you know, Sheldon, what percentage of uh, the repair bays doing warranty work, but it, it used to be like two thirds of the work the dealers are doing. Now it's got to be a fifth. Um, well, dealer, dealers love uh, customer pay, no doubt. Customer pay, yeah. And uh, dealers scrambled around and they started selling extended service plans and things like that, which lock you into the bays, et cetera, et cetera. I think, you know, uh, somehow I think that uh, the net impact on 
the service revenue uh, if we, A, keep retention high, and then B, scramble around to, uh, you know, um, uh, keep the customer linked in, I think we'll probably get through it. What about battery? Uh, the other thing to point out, of course, too, is yeah, battery swapping and, battery and, plate, and battery, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because like, like, remember, remember, we're talking about a fixed number of dealers at this point in time. It's been about 17,500 for about a decade or more. And if we have a growing population in the United States and a growing GDP and a growing fleet, uh, dealers who might relatively get less EV service revenue might not actually see that in absolute dollars. So I, I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish, but I don't think EVs sort of, you know, wipe out dealers. The other thing too, of course, is it depends on your EV forecast, how fast they feather in. Imagine you're an incredibly bullish EV uh, forecaster and you say by 2025, 10% of all vehicles sold will be um, EV. Okay, so that means 10% uh, of 17 million, 1.7 million is probably 3 million on the road now, 5 million out of a total fleet of 290 million vehicles. It'll take a while to penetrate uh, the, de the dealer service department. If you're a pessimist, you say, uh, boiling frog problem, they won't notice it until it's too late, but that might be 2035. Okay, Terrific. so. Terrific. Really terrific, uh, Glenn. Really terrific. I mean, seriously, because those those are the, the those are. I I agree one hundred percent with you know that perspective. We'll continue in just a moment, but this is a good time to remind you about our sponsor, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol M O T O. To get more info, head to M O T O ETF dot com. On the website there, there's a a white paper that you should look for. It's called the Smart Transportation Revolution. It's under the Insights and News tab. Great information there to help you make informed decisions about investing. ETFs, as you probably know, can be a smart way to spread risk with investments and focus on a particular category of stocks. The site again is motoetf.com. Alan, we're gonna to turn to some headlines and we welcome uh, Sheldon and Glenn to join in and commenting on these two. The big one today, Waymo pulls back the curtain on 6.1 million miles of self-driving car data in Phoenix. That's the headline from The Verge and uh, the story is out there today. And I know you played a, a little bit of a part in, in this as well. Uh, yes, I, I did, um, did have the, um... Uh, the privilege of of uh, previewing uh, the the release. Uh, I was under NDA to Waymo, and I've now been released from that uh, non-disclosure. And uh, and um, I guess I can comment. I I think this is really a breath of fresh air for the whole driverless uh, community. The reason is is because. It, what's been in the safety reports to date have been sort of public relations uh, um, announcements of, of what we're gonna do. Uh, this is this is the first time that real experience on what the performance of these systems has been in a real operational design domain under real services, providing the mobility that that they're trying that they're looking to provide. And uh, I really appreciated the way Waymo put it out there. Uh, the, the way, at least when I read the report, I, I read it as if uh, this report was being presented 
inside Waymo, inside a decision maker. This is how we've performed to date. Are we good enough to go out there and take the risk of providing the mobility in a driverless way so that we have the opportunity to provide it at an affordable level and deliver mobility out there to the public, and which I think is the real value of the automation when we can take the driver out of there. You can think back maybe in 1945 when the decision was made to take the elevator operator out of elevators and make them automated. What did that do? That allowed affordable vertical mobility that allowed, you know, buildings taller than three or four stories to be built and operated and unleashed the opportunity to provide mobility to everybody. To me, that can only be unleashed if you take the driver out, out of there. Why? Because that's the that's the expensive item. That's the variable cost item. That you know, if you have enough density and there's enough money to pay people to drive, fine, pay them to drive. But most of the trips that are made and the mobility that we want, there are only one or a couple of us that want to go at that time to that place, from that place. It's so diffuse that, of course, you have to be able to provide mobility that is diffuse. We've done that very well to the folks who can afford to own their own cars and are capable of driving their own cars. We do that in spades. We've done that beautifully for 120 years. But now how do we bring this to the folks who either couldn't afford it, couldn't do it, or for, or too young, too old, or all the other things? This is, this, and to me, what I, what, what I found refreshing about what Waymo put out there was it was it read to me like an internal document and, and was, was being presented to me as if I was about to be asked, do I think or do I vote to put this out there when in fact I put the ranch on the table and if this doesn't work, I lose the ranch. And as I looked at it, I would vote yes. So this is the I mean, kind of disclosure that you've been calling for for a long time. Absolutely. You know, people say, you know, disengagements are, are incorrect. Of course, disengagements by themselves. The question is, when you had a dis when you had somebody overseeing and they grabbed a hold, you know, what would have happened? What you, you can go that you have simulations, you can do that. They went and, and basically report on every disengagement that they've had. They report on every crash that has happened to them in this time period and said, here's the situation. Okay. They've record, reported on every accident, crash that they've had with, with a pedestrian. I guess the only one that they've had is when the pedestrian ran into them, okay, and it was a vehicle was stopped. I mean, so so the data that that's, that seems to be out there is sort of, to me, was was the kind of data that one would hope one presents internally to the decision makers around the table that have to accept the responsibility. They can't say if something happens, hey, you know, dog ate my homework. There's no dog that ate any available here. Or point to a list of, 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 of requirements put by a regulator, check this box, that box, and that box. Nobody's put on box checkers, you know, such that if I check the boxes, I can blame them. 
they have to they're they have to accept the responsibility themselves so they have to be able to see that in fact this is good enough and i think that th this is the way i read it now maybe i read it wrong i don't know maybe i'm too much of a fan or something i don't know but uh, i guess i'm not that much of a fan but i find i hope um you know everybody takes a look at that and comes up with it with with their own decision on that or, or they're appalled how could they possibly do this my goodness they're going to kill my children don't come in my neighborhood i i, I don't know that's the way i read it and i think what's really nice about it is they put it out there like that and and i think that that is really good I, I have nowhere near the expertise you have on um, AVs, and frankly, uh, a large, measurable portion of what I know about AVs is from reading your newsletter and following up on the sources. So yeah. uh, I'm just going to chip in from the sure, side. Sure, please, dude, say, please, Glenn. I say, appreciate you know, uh, I forget who it was, which engineer said, after you do 90% of the work to build an AV, you have 90% left to go. Absolutely. There, that is so true. That is absolutely true. Because you know uh there's two optics on the safety portion of things the silicon valley optic is 40,000 americans killed on the road every year humans are horrible drivers the other end of the optic is one fatality for every 100 million miles driven humans are great drivers and it's obviously both uh, of course and, and yeah. so waymo seems and that's why i think we've had so many av startups because you can get pretty damn close to self-driving pretty quickly Look, I, 15 like years ago at at, 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 at at Grand Challenge, man, we were down there going down the streets of Las Vegas without without any hands on the wheel. You know, I mean, totally irresponsible. Well, but you, you know, too. you know, yeah, <laughs> go ahead, go. But um, but, but uh, yeah, and, and I think Waymo seems to be one of the very few that really has a shot at doing this. I mean, it's funny. Everybody talks about AVs like it's some sort of startup industry, but. Google's first driverless car was 11 years ago, I think. Yeah, it, it, yes. Yeah. In, in yeah. 09, they started. It's, it's been 11 it's, years. Yeah. Right. And so that just points out this is really, really hard. I think the problem gets solved, and Waymo's announcing this shows some real progress uh, towards uh, towards that solving. So, And I think, and I, I don't want to make this a Tesla phone call, and I, I don't think, you know, uh, I'm not going to weigh in on Tesla bull or bear, but it's fascinating to see that the confluence of Waymo's announcement of this progress and Tesla's announcement of raising the price of the RSD suite. I don't know if there's something else that happened, like you know Grimes divorced Elon or something, but Tesla stock is down $26 today, and I, I think it might be uh, the market saying, "Wow." Uh, there may be uh, a rivaled FSD that, uh, from Waymo that will allow a lot of other car companies to, quote unquote, catch up to Tesla on the FSD side. Now, whether you think Tesla actually has a driver, you know, like we, I'll let you talk about that. But if you are a believer and think that Tesla is already there, this is announced that another behemoth is hot on the heels, ready to enable all the other OEMs. Maybe that's what's causing this uh, decline. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, of course, I don't think that I think Tesla's done a really good job as long as you're behind a wheel, ready yeah. to take over when the thing uh, when the thing doesn't. That, but idiot. in other words, it's it's might be at 90, it might be at 99 percent. Uh, but uh, but, uh, you know, there's still a, a, an enormous way to go. What, what seems to be in in this Waymo announcement is that, in fact, 
in an operational design domain and it's key to say within an operational design domain where they've had this thing operating with human oversight the human oversight really did not contribute to making it safer the damn thing was damn good by itself and in fact it you know, sort of almost like I'd like to say maybe happened in 1945 again with respect to the elevator operator and the elevator operator strike. Oh my goodness, they went on strike, but the elevators still went up and down and the automated ones worked and we didn't need them. And all of a sudden, why do we need them? In some sense, that's that's where that, that corporate responsibility might be with what seems to be not, not, data that's been cleaned up and made for public consumption. This seems to be straight out the information that one would want to have. Now, of course, I haven't there. I haven't done looked at the data themselves. I don't know whether or not I, they faked it and so on and are lying and did they do and all the other. I, I don't believe I, I I don't think they were, but uh, you know, it, I haven't, you know, redone the analyses and relooked at them. But it looked to me like it was presented as you would present it internally. When you're not concerned internally, is this good enough for me to accept the responsibility? It being on me now that this thing's going to work. I'm going to be the one that's going to have to pick up the pieces. It's all going to come to me. Okay, and it looks to me like Jesus, you know. No, this is Sheldon. Yeah, go no, ahead, Sheldon. Let me interrupt you. Yeah. The big question I've had about this whole uh, effort by WMO and everybody else is, and maybe Glenn can help me with this, where's the return on investment? How much, how much has already been invested, for example, by WMO? And whether there are profit, you, you, ultimately, you're doing follow the money, right? Ultimately, you're doing this to make a profit. So, yeah. I, I, what? Well, who's studied this? I mean, they must know how much it's it's going to generate for them in profits. Uh, I, well, go it, ahead. It's go a tough ahead. one. Uh, I mean, I was speaking somewhat sarcastically, stealing Ed Niedermeyer's uh, take that. Tesla is the most successful autonomous vehicle company because it's been able to sell what it calls autonomous driving uh, for good money, for hundreds of millions of dollars now, I think, uh, even if they don't actually provide it uh, either on time or at all. But leaving that aside, which is a trivial remark, um, it, that's a really, that's the question here. And that is, um, let's say you get the robo-taxi to work um, you take the driver out, and now it's cheaper. Uh, how? But how does Waymo recoup ten billion or whatever? Do they just right. write it off and say we'll run on marginal cost and revenue now? In which case, the robotax will be cheaper. Or do they try to get some of that back? Uh, you know, it's I I, I don't see well, it. It's a I, huge I, investment, Glenn. I, I can't imagine. 
it's a it's a huge investment. I think that uh, some of this is preying on uh, what Adam Jonas was saying, you know, several number of years ago. You know that the mobility business is a ten trillion dollar a year business, and if it is a ten trillion dollar a year business, the question is: is how do you go into that business, and what do you provide? Do you provide vehicles that then are the responsibility of us as individuals? We have to drive them. We have to put in our labor at zero cost we have to maintain it we have to ensure it and we have to do that or do you go out there and provide it as a service so that we pay for it and you know that which is a fundamental question when i look at these things the kind of numbers that i sort of throw around is that I look at the productivity of one of these vehicles as being able to maybe serve 50 person trips a day type of thing with respect to those things. And then the question is, is what kind of return on what can you charge for a trip versus what it's going to cost you per, per vehicle mile? the cost per vehicle mile of operating these systems and today's costs might end up long run capitalization, maintenance, and depending on if you do it well, maybe down as low as maybe 25 cents a vehicle mile, maybe 50 cents a vehicle mile, somewhere between the, those kinds of things. Do you get two people in there that are willing to pay, you know, if, if you have to end up paying even, you know, 30, 40 cents, 50 cents a vehicle mile, it's really on the margin quite quite good um, and then you know make 10 cents make 15 cents a person mile you look at the number of person miles and you're making 15 cents on them you know the the numbers add up but it's it's a business that is drip 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 from operating okay from that operation, that's what it is. Now, can you set up your operation such that the, the labor input is small enough, such that it's really just fixed, that, that you're really just doing the amortization or the carrying costs of those things? It can. It's certainly, you know, heck of a lot better than any transit company. The darn transit companies are so burdened by labor, so that so that the it's it's everything is associated with labor. You know, now you have a thing that can just do it. Do you then want to move packages with it? Do you want to move Amazon's packages with this stuff between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m. when you can do it easily? Blah blah da da da, and all the other kinds of things. Those are the I mean, those fit into that, but it is it is a long run, uh, drip, drip, drip business as opposed to, hey, I make a big amount here, big amount there, big amount there. I don't know, Glenn. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know either. And, and all these projections are just so incredibly complicated and hard to do. One thing for, you know, you already mentioned it is, so let's say there's a robo taxi out there at X cents per mile. And how do the analysts compare that now to an owned car? They inevitably compare it to a new car. But if the average American is buying a $12,000 four-year-old car, don't they see a different sense per mile? And then, as you already mentioned, we donate our labor for free. If Americans think I can redeploy the labor in the car to a more useful purpose, like Angry Birds or something, uh, then that works. On the other hand, if they don't see it for free, I mean, 
soapbox yeah. number 37B, uh, a lot of technological innovation over the past 10 years has been tilted towards making the customer do your work for you for free. We talk endlessly about, you know, uh, I can do all my car research online. I don't have to go to the dealer. Well, if you went to the dealer, there was a salesperson paid to do the research. Now you're doing it for free. Thank you. We save that money, uh, you know, or, you know, uh, check in online, hotel reservations online. Great. No more travel agent to do it for you. You do it for free. So Americans seem to tolerate an enormous amount of labor at zero dollars per hour. I don't know. That's why I keep. That's why I keep wondering. And uh, but I'm going to come back to one thing you haven't mentioned, but you have mentioned repeatedly in your work uh, online overall. I'm going to come back to it in a minute. Is that's why I wonder if if Waymo is sitting there, do they say? maybe my road to profitability is selling the Waymo autonomous vehicle software and sensor suite for $25,000 as an upcharge on a Mercedes, then drip, drip, dripping it through fleets. I don't know, but that, that's something. That, I, I, that is a great point. I, and, and I don't know, they haven't shown that indication. And then exactly. I, then I, I end up really worrying about this responsibility thing. Like now that. that I've sold it to you, I, I like selling you stuff as long as when you, you, when you get it, it's your problem, no longer my problem. Right. Okay. The longer it's my problem is really, I mean, that is a really big expense that I have to bear, especially if I don't right. control it. You know, I mean, it's out there. But the other thing which you've mentioned a lot in the past, I do want to bring up here yep. is for the blind and disabled, this thing is just incredible. And the poor. And the poor, because then you can subsidize it. I mean, the subsidy that you have to provide to be able to provide mobility to the people in Trenton versus putting buses out there for which I have to, the labor is the big expense. Okay. I mean, you know, that's the thing that I, that's a, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, you're, you're right there. Uh, there's issues then of pulling all the poor off uh, Mercer's buses and putting them all on Allen's cars and clogging all the roads again. But uh, yeah, but you know, you're well, right. They, they deserve access to that. They, they, they deserve access to those roads as well as I deserve. Now go ahead. That's in social okay. equity and whatever. But we won't no, go. but there's yeah, at least yeah, three yeah. arguments for driverless. One is safety. Yeah. Uh, will yeah. they be safer? Okay, sure. cool. Yeah. We yeah. debate cool. about whether people will pay for that or not, but it's true. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. Convenience yeah. is another one. I'm sure. the eye banker in the back, and I want to be able to do my email while on the way sure. to yeah, Goldman yeah. Sachs. And the third one is social equity, yeah. uh, broadly defined as blind people who have never been able to move around, uh, disabled to some extent. I think part of the challenge on disabled is we forget the problems they have getting in and out of the car yeah, and yeah, being yeah, yeah, human yeah. again already anyway, but yeah. disabled. And then, yes, uh, the poor, though I think it is a very open question on where would the money be better spent? Would it be better spent on putting on 20 more buses and handing out free e-bikes than subsidizing robo-taxis? I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I'm not, yeah, yeah. No, no, that's worth it. It's worth it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, and, and, and what about the elderly population? And the elder, the elderly. Yeah, I was, in I was lumping them in with disabled, though at the age of 65, maybe I shouldn't be. Hmm. <laughs> I'm not 65 yet, so you know I'm still yeah. 38 now. We, we will have an increasing population in America <laughs> being uh, very elderly, and so uh, robo taxis might work uh, very, very well for them. But right now they use shuttles and things like that uh, already, and we already see the problems there of how do I get my wheelchair in and out 
I have a walker. How do I get it out of the car? And we've usually fixed that by throwing humans at it. There's an attendant there to help you in and out. Or you get in the car and you're a little disoriented and you don't know where to tell it to go. And again, a human will say, I'll just take you back home. You know, uh, So I, I don't know if it'll be as easy for, um, uh, for the disabled. My, my argument on that is, is that we need support at where people get on and get off. Yep. Those are fixed supports. They don't have to yep. be going right. between them. And therefore, that can be. But that's right. a detail. The, 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 those, right. those are details on that. Those are appropriate issues with with respect i well this is this certainly has been a, a wonderful discussion uh, uh i can't thank you both enough um i think uh, you've been very straightforward and very up, up front uh, uh with respect to uh uh the dealerships and 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 the, and the role here and and of course i agree that uh, all this is is going to take some amount of time it's not going to happen instantaneously i mean you know we're we're still at ver at, at zero on all these things we barely started <clears throat> it takes a while uh and and but i think that that um, that there's 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 continues to be opportunity here for dealers and especially especially on the maintenance and, and the support of these fleets however small or big they end up becoming and the the, the manufacturers of the vehicles are going to be the the um, the oems why i mean they've been in business they know how to do this Okay, you know, building a vehicle is not all that simple. And even if you look at, at, at Tesla, you know, how long have they been around now? It's over, what, 15 years? When did, when did Tesla put out the first Roadster? I mean, you know, 15 years ago or whatever. So, you know, it's, it's not just instantaneously out of, out of Silicon Valley. This is, this is a, a difficult business. And so um, I don't know. It's been it's been very refreshing, very informative. I can't thank you enough for joining us. Well, thank you all for a great discussion. Thanks to our sponsor, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF. The ticker symbol for the ETF is MOTO, and more information is available at MOTOETF.com. You can find us at SmartDrivingCar.com. Also on Anchor FM, Spotify, TuneIn, Apple, Google, Spreaker, Amazon Music, SoundCloud, and more. Ask your smart speaker to play us too. You can find my tech reports at textination.com. I'm Fred Fishkin along with Alan Kornhauser. Thanks for listening or watching, and please stay safe.